Hello and welcome to the fifth part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. In the birth of the clinic, Foucault describes how hospitals in 18th century France had become such a hub of disease that people, especially the poor, came to see them as places of contagion where people went to die. 200 years later, exactly the same thing happened in COVID-struck countries around the world. In China, Italy, France, the UK, USA, Russia, and many other countries, it was doctors, nurses, and hospitals that became the first great spreaders of COVID-19, catching it unawares from early patients who came in for treatment with flu-like symptoms. A big chunk of COVID-19 in Lombardy in Italy, <clears throat> New York in the US, and England in the UK were found to be from hospital infections. The birth of the clinic also describes how the phenomena of hospital-acquired infections led to the discussion of de-hospitalization. People began to advocate for patients to be treated in their homes. This was said to have the double benefit of keeping patients in the more affectionate environment of his family, as well as preventing their illness from being complicated by hospital infection. 200 years later, Italian doctors from COVID-struck hospitals of Northern Italy echoed these same ideas. Dr. Giorgiana Piccoli says, writing in the Journal of Nephrology, <clears throat> and I had quoted uh, her article before yesterday as well, uh, she writes that a factory-like hospital is intuitively far from the ideal of personalized medicine, and such a system may prove incapable of providing specific personalized contact with caregivers, a point that is often important for chronic patients. In the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Nakoti and colleagues say, we are learning that hospitals might be the main COVID-19 carriers as they are rapidly populated by infected patients, facilitating transmission to uninfected patients. Home care and mobile clinics avoid unnecessary movements and release pressure from hospitals. In the journal JAMA Internal Medicine, Dr. Boccia and others say, in Lombardy, that's Northern Italy, SARS-CoV-2 has become a largely nosocomial infection hospital acquired. The lessons relevant to other countries are the need to avoid bringing patients with suspected SARS-CoV-2 infection to the hospital, except when they clearly require hospital care. Countries like Japan and South Korea, who were conscious of the tendency of hospitals to become hubs of disease in epidemics, built into their disease response strategy the prevention of COVID-19 spread through hospitals. In Japan, to keep hospitals clear of infection, municipal authorities were asked to set up specialized consultation centers for testing. Experts early on expressed a concern that hospitals were at risk of becoming contaminated from too many people with symptoms of cold coming in for testing. People were requested not to overcrowd hospitals <clears throat> and to quarantine and take treatment at home for the first few days if they developed cold or fever. They were told to report for testing only after they had had symptoms for four days. In Japan, there was also, unlike countries in the West, 
early recognition of the danger of the spread of infection in old age facilities. To keep hospitals clear of infection, South Koreans made wide use of telemedicine and testing outside of hospital settings as uh, with their now very famous drive-by tests. They <coughs> Uh, I've actually uh, put the reference to a, a document that the South Korean government uh, issued about uh, their COVID response. Uh, I think it's called the use of information and communication technology uh, in responding to COVID. And um, I, I would recommend that those of you who are interested actually look at it because the South Korean response was uh, a much more uh, involved a lot more simply than a lot of testing. And um, uh, what has happened is that, that, that there has been a very superficial understanding uh, in, in between countries of what, what, what they were actually doing. And, uh, you know, in the, in the fog of the epidemic, uh, people have picked up strands here and there and um, missed out actually on uh, the, the, you know, the essence of uh, what the strategies were in different places. So uh, what the South Koreans did, which is that they, they set up digital apps for communicating test results and prescriptions and uh, organizing the home delivery of medicines. And um, though Japan and South Korea did have COVID-19 outbreaks in some of their hospitals, the overall size of the outbreak in these countries was smaller than in other places. As in 18th century France, the fear of hospitals gripped the populace wherever it was hit by COVID-19. The Chinese government had adopted a policy of putting everyone suspected of COVID-19 into mandatory hospital isolation. COVID-19 suspects in Wuhan were cohorted in isolation wards uh, with others where infection might have spread. Videos surfaced on social media of people in China being dragged, kicking and screaming to forced hospital isolation. There were stories of COVID patients running away from hospitals in Russia and Iran and screaming to be let go of when being admitted to hospitals in New York. Quarantine centers in India came to be feared equally for their squalid conditions as for the risk of infection. <clears throat> If we had not been so fixated on epidemiologist reports, a historical survey of epidemics past could have helped us to anticipate the vulnerabilities of hospitals during epidemics. We would not have had to go so far back as 18th century France to learn about this. A deep fear and resentment of hospitals and quarantine centers have been a running theme in each and every one of the five Ebola outbreaks in West Africa since the mid-1970s. The World Health Organization is so disliked there that it has had to advise its workers not to wear its logo when doing community outreach. But <clears throat> we did not even think to look at the material on hand about epidemics. We did not attempt to understand the effect on people of the policing role, the policing role that healthcare workers and hospitals take on under a policy that emphasizes disease control over treatment of the sick. Instead, led by the dehumanized, decontextualized, dehistoricized containment approach of the WHO, we terrorized and alienated people, we used force on them 
and expose them to infection in the name of protecting them from it. <clears throat> Awareness of hospital infections would not in of itself have protected from its happening or guaranteed against it. As we saw, even in countries that had anticipated it and took preventive measures like Japan and South Korea, there were hospital outbreaks. There is no escaping the chaos of the epidemic. This is a lesson that we all have to learn. Actually, it's a lesson that you know people like us in India and other countries already know, but there is no escaping the chaos of the epidemic. Even dehospitalization creates problems. In Japan, the focus on keeping people away from hospitals left them feeling vulnerable and neglected. The specialized testing centers had waiting queues and the system was criticized for missing people with COVID pneumonia who needed urgent help. This brings us back to what I said yesterday about there being no neat solutions in an epidemic. Another problem with dehospitalization is that in developed countries, there may be no home and no family to dehospitalize into. In Sweden, 40% of households are single person without children. 40% of households are single person, no children. Where is the family that 18th century French doctors spoke of to care for the ill as described in the birth of the clinic? Can you send a sick person to his house alone? And what about the fact that so many of the elderly in developed countries are not living with their families but in care homes? In a telling passage in one of its reports, the COVID experts group writes, the average size of households that have a resident over the age of 65 years is substantially higher in countries with lower income compared with middle and high income countries. Contact patterns between age groups also differ by country. In high income settings, contact patterns tend to decline steeply with age. This effect is more moderate in middle income settings and disappears in low income settings, indicating that elderly individuals in these settings, that is lower income and middle income countries, maintain higher contact rates with a wide range of age groups compared to elderly individuals in high income countries. The COVID experts group uses this to argue in its usual jaundiced way that this makes the elderly less vulnerable to infection in high income settings. They were completely wrong as they failed to account for the increased exposure of the elderly to infection in the communal setting of the care home. This reveals one of the mistakes of only thinking in terms of flattening the curve by locking down to stop the entry of the virus. The virus inexorably found its way to wherever people could be found. There was a recklessness in thinking knowing what we did from the start about the highly contagious nature of SARS-CoV-2, that suppression would work. We should have paid attention not just to the entry of contagion, but also to dispersing it once it took root. Instead of 
as in the case of old age homes, actually assisting the further spread of disease by locking residents in place rather than allowing them to leave where possible. The risk of infection from communal living arrangements in old age and nursing homes was exacerbated by the fact that owing to the flatten the curve focus on hospitals, the risk of the spread of infection in these facilities was overlooked. Care home staff were not a priority for the allocation of personal protective uh, equipment, PPE. And with the culture of lockdown taking hold everywhere, the sole COVID response of many old age homes was to stop families from visiting their residents, leaving them ever more alone and unspoken for. In many states in the US, a further layer of risk was added by nursing homes being requisitioned to house convalescing COVID-19 patients who might still have been infectious. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo and other state governors there have come under attack for sending elderly COVID patients to nursing homes from hospitals for recovery without taking care of all of these things. The description of old age in high-income countries by the COVID experts group, wrong as their inferences were, are very revealing of the isolation and lack of options for being nursed in the family home for those living in rich countries. Dehospitalization can only work in a society that has multi-generational homes where caring for the sick and elderly is woven into the fabric of family life and not considered purely a matter of care homes and hospital beds and machines. <clears throat> so, in a way, Western epidemiologists were right to the extent that they were operating on the very real premise for them that in their societies, the ailing often have nothing but machines and beds to serve them. But these are not conditions that apply in developing countries, at least not in Asia and Africa. And this is something that the WHO, as a World Health Organization, ought to have appreciated before sentencing us all to lockdown. News reports of old people found dead in their beds by the army in Spain, of old people in the UK, found starving alone at home under lockdown, of no one coming to claim the bodies of the COVID dead in New York, whose burial in marked mass graves was relayed across the world by the international news media, give us hints of something much wider and of longer standing than the outbreak of COVID-19 being at play. How alone must these people have been and for how long? They did not simply happen to die alone in the midst of a lockdown. They were already alone when they fell ill. They already had no one to call them when they took to their beds. These deaths were not just the accident of the COVID-19 epidemic. They tell us something about the anomie of life in advanced societies and of the price they pay for their individualistic values.
The loneliness of life in Sweden, with 40% of households comprising just one person, casts its much remarked upon no lockdown policy in a new light. Isolation is so woven into the fabric of life there that it did not need official imposition. At least the Swedes showed a greater self-awareness than other Western countries by intervening to mediate this isolation by facilitating a limited social life even under the spreading COVID-19 disease. We in the developing world also need a lesson in awareness. We need to be more aware of the differences between life here and in the West before adopting Western models for our societies. Part of the problem with COVID-19 spreading among the elderly in developed countries arose in a, in a very sad irony from the better health standards in these places. These societies have greater longevity and widely available sophisticated operations for advanced cancers and other non-communicable diseases. This means that a lot of older people can get life-saving medical interventions like tracheostomies, but these complex surgeries also leave them in need of special care for the remainder of their lives. And so some of these people have to be kept in nursing homes with advanced medical equipment and trained staff. In the end, COVID-19 ravaged old-age homes in Europe and North America. In Canada, this has been the disease of the old-age home, with an estimated 85% of COVID deaths by late June having been of residents of long-term care and retirement homes and assisted living facilities. By mid-May in France, Ireland, Belgium, the UK, Spain and the US, over half the deaths were said to be of care home residents who died either in care homes or in hospitals and nursing homes. These figures had changed somewhat by early July to 49% in France and gone up to 63% in Ireland, 64% in Belgium, 41% in England and Wales, 52% in Northern Ireland, 44% in Scotland, 34% confirmed to 68% confirmed plus probable from uh, COVID-19 in Spain and 45% in the US. In the US, in some states, the proportion of deaths from nursing homes and long-term care facilities reported by mid-May was even higher, 81% in Minnesota, 78% in Rhode Island, 77% in New Hampshire, 70% in Connecticut, 60% in o and over in Massachusetts, Delaware, and Kentucky, among others. By late May, New York, which was among the early hotspots in the U.S., was showing 20% deaths from this category, but it was probably much higher earlier in the epidemic. It was 51% in neighboring New Jersey by late May. Even in countries with relatively lower COVID deaths in Europe, such as Germany, Sweden, and Norway, Old-age home deaths were a high proportion of the total. By the third week of June, 39% of the COVID deaths in Germany were reported in communal settings, including prisons and nursing homes. In Sweden, nearly 47% of COVID deaths were of care home residents. 
In Norway, 59% of COVID deaths were of residents of care homes and other institutions. We should not let these rich countries off the hook by allowing them to point to age and comorbidities as excusing the deaths of the elderly from COVID-19. Firstly, the fact that the vulnerability of care homes was not anticipated points to a high degree of neglect of these homes. In Sweden, while all the attention was on what competing epidemiologists were saying and whether the limited public and school activity permitted there was right or wrong, it was the elderly in care who were dying overwhelmingly by the largest numbers. And there were some very worrying reports in the press of the elderly being ignored or even denied oxygen and other treatment in Sweden. Even prisons received more attention on this point with prisoners in Norway and the US, among other places, being released in order to reduce crowding and the risk of infection. <clears throat> the, whole, uh, the other thing is that the whole idea of comorbidities, comorbidities has to be vigorously interrogated. You see this expression in all the medical literature on COVID-19, starting with Chinese journal publications. But what are these so-called comorbidities? Cardiovascular disease? Diabetes? High blood pressure? These are really just concomitants of increasing age. They are not comorbidities in any useful sense because almost any person above the age of 50 starts to develop some degree of these. And those in their 70s and 80s would generally have some degree of all three conditions. <laughs> High blood pressure. Come on. Okay. Comorbidity sounds much less like an authentic clinical description and much more like the finessing of a lawyer or insurance company and in all likelihood has its origins as a concept from there. And all these questions should be relentlessly pursued until we get some answers, now that it seems that the age of infectious disease is back upon us. <clears throat> One of the most alarming stories to emerge over COVID-19 was the total isolation in hospital of patients with no family attendant being permitted. We read in horror reports of the elderly in Italy dying absolutely alone in claustrophobic, plastic-encased uh, hospital chambers. Once the epidemic reached India, the families of the dead began to report of the neglect and utter isolation of their relatives in the country's designated COVID-19 hospitals. Families who had mobile phones tried to stay in touch with their hospitalized relatives in that way. One family had to call the nursing station for hours before their son was given a glass of water. He died alone a few days later. The idea of hospital isolation completely misses the fact that the family attendant is a key link in the chain of modern hospital care. At the time of which Foucault wrote, the direct observation of the patient was the centerpiece of the physician's work. This was the starting point for Foucault's discussion of the so-called medical gaze, an expression that became famous after that. But in the modern hospital, without a family attendant, 
the only gaze a patient is under is that of his monitoring machines. Nurses look in every so many hours and doctors do the rounds not more frequently than once a day, stopping at each patient for not more than a few minutes. In 21st century hospitals, the medical gaze is split between family attendant, machine, nurse and doctor. Like a cockroach's vision, the complete picture is formed only by the coming together of the separate fragments recorded by each part of the composite eye. Take away any part and the picture has a blind spot. The presence of the family attendant, therefore, is not merely a sentimental matter for patient and family. For those immobilized by sickness, it is the family attendant who does the nursing and acts as the patient's eyes, ears and limbs for everything from visiting the toilet to discussing treatment with the doctors. Without this key mediation, the patient is only incompletely attended and spoken for. This places the patient, especially a critically ill one, at grave risk even with the best efforts of hospitals, doctors and nurses. We should have been aware of this and we should have accounted for it in, des in designing the scheme of treatment for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. All these are things that the World Health Organization, in its role as the world's overseer of medical practice, should have been aware of and highlighted. But Mike Ryan of the WHO showed himself to be a great fan of hospital isolation even going so far as to say that the reason the European outbreaks were larger than the Chinese one <clears throat> was that in Wuhan, containment was not confined to lockdown or social distancing and that along with lockdown, the Chinese authorities, quote, continued to detect cases and isolated all cases, including mild cases, away from the family. Mike Ryan then made his now infamous observation that since with lockdown, transmission had been taken off the streets and pushed into families, he said, now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a safe and dignified manner. We need to go and look in families and find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a safe and dignified manner. Clearly, WHO officials, like epidemiologists, only think of numbers and not of people. The question is, how can the World Health Organization, as a health body, be so insensitive to the impact of such statements and policies on people? How could it have endorsed the incarceration and endangerment of people by forcibly concentrating them in hospital as was done by the Chinese government. Does the WHO remember the last time that concentration was used as a state policy? Don't let these people get away with what they've done to us. Please, please speak up, read up about this. All of this is 
it's all reference it's it's all there in the public domain it's it's hiding in plain sight you know the this this it's a kind of holocaust that we have committed <clears throat> right moving on one of the many useful perspectives that foucault gives us about changes in medical science in the birth of the clinic is the way in which choices are made over time among competing perspectives <clears throat> of the body and disease he gives the example of the emergence of the analysis of tissues in diagnosing illness as a change from the clinical method of observing the symptoms and inquiring about the history of the illness from the patient that's the clinical method observing uh, symptoms and signs and inquiring about the history of the illness from the patient this uh, was a shift in the in 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 attention to the tissues that is to an inquiry uh, of what lies below the surface of the body from what can be seen on the surface of the body which is the symptoms foucault says that before tissue analysis came into vogue there were books and studies of disease based on tissues but this work remained in the background owing to pitched arguments taking place around the time of the french revolution in the medical field regarding the abolition of hospitals hospitals had become as i said so unpopular as a hub of disease that uh, where it was felt that the poor only went to die that the cry that went up was no more arms no more hospitals it was argued that if the revolution were true to its principles of egalitarianism then there would be no disease and hence no need for hospitals there was also a demand to liberalize medical practice by doing away with licensing and allowing anyone who wished to practice medicine to do so it was said that licensing was merely a way of preserving the privilege of the medical guilds <clears throat> but moves to abolish hospitals and licensing led to a proliferation of quacks and masses of people being left with nowhere to go for treatment as a compromise the idea of the clinic was evolved uh, from which incidentally this book gets its title the birth of the clinic it was said that in the clinic doctors and medical students would be immersed in the actual observation and treatment of the sick and be trained by the direct study of disease among the people and not as earlier in the study of esoteric medical theory which had served uh, merely to keep it was said the privileges of medical practice to the few in this way it was argued the clinic would be true to the principles of the revolution so the return of the hospital was according to foucault in in this form as the clinic deeply caught up in being justified in terms of the observation of the sick and in training the eye to observe knowingly for this reason foucault argues for a long time medicine remained focused on the signs and symptoms of disease that is on the surface of the body he says that it was a while before the practice of clinical observation itself uh, led to thinking about what might be going on inside the body over time clinics began to conduct autopsies to confirm their diagnosis when a patient died and this led to more and more studies backwards from autopsied bodies about the origins and progress of disease 
Interestingly, the medical gaze having penetrated the body and fixed first upon the organs and then the tissues for analysis, moved back to the surface of the body and beyond as the conversation moved on to whether lesions in tissues were the result of disease, were the result of disease or the manifestation of it and the observation of generalized symptoms such as fevers uh, which are not organ specific and this brought doctors back to thinking in a less localized way about disease. What this survey of the changing medical gaze tells us is that the medical field witnesses the abandonment of forms of treatment or, cat or ways of categorizing disease or ways of understanding the body not because they were wrong but simply because another perspective of the body or disease comes to the fore. And this change of attention to new treatments or new perspectives occurs for <clears throat> external reasons, political, cultural, even coincidental. They may uh, just be a charismatic a figure within the medical field whose particular point of view uh, becomes popular by, by virtue of that. And <clears throat> these are reasons that don't exist within the logic of medical science without making um, them any less, uh, this choice of new treatment or new, new perspective, without making it any less valid as science. <clears throat> this understanding of progress in medical science uh, as not uh, so much an inexorable advance onwards and upwards to wider and better levels of knowledge, but of a movement back and forth and laterally between different ways of looking at the body and disease is something that's especially relevant today. COVID-19 has brought us to the limits of the current state of science and medical practice. And so we need to see if there are other systems of medicine that can come to our aid. <clears throat> Before allopathic medicine as we know it today, there were other systems of treatment and other ways of organizing the organs and functions of the body. In traditional medicine in South Asia and China, for instance, there is the idea of heat and cold. Some diseases create too much heat in the body, while others too much coolness, and treatments are given that will increase or decrease the heat as needed. These treatments take the form of herbs, minerals, uh, exposure to different airs, more or less sunlight, and the prescription of special dietary regimens. Ancient systems like Ayurveda and Chinese traditional medicine are no less systematic than the nosologies of 18th century France or any modern encyclopedia of medicine. In the West, there was the idea of the humors of the body whose disturbed balance had to be restored by treatment. A more modern non-allopathic system is homeopathy. It's only relatively speaking more modern because homeopathy is 200 years old. Though this developed in Germany, it is wildly popular in India and I suspect in other parts of South Asia. I am among the millions of Indians who rushed to their homeopaths for COVID-19 preventive medicines as soon as the first face mask began to be worn. And some state governments here in India have also been prescribing uh, homeopathic uh, medications for COVID-19 prevention. I can hear all the scientists just leaving and losing interest immediately. <laughs> Full disclosure. 
the medical profession almost universally scoffs at traditional remedies and mutters about clinical trials that they mention. But as we have seen, the medical establishment is itself working with drugs that have not passed the gold standard of the clinical trial. We're at a moment where the medical establishment has to climb down from its high horse over traditional remedies and natural medicine. Clinical trial or not, natural remedies have been tried and tested over thousands of years and found to be effective for a host of ailments. Surely, even for the most obstinately statistically minded, 1,000 years of unbroken and unforced use is at least something like a randomized placebo trial. For those who need the, the imprimatur of modern science, from time to time you do see scientific research that confirms the therapeutic qualities of products commonly used in traditional medicine like turmeric. These are things that anyone in developing countries, <coughs> rich or poor, <coughs> educated or not, has known about and used for generations. Scientifically identifying the therapeutic qualities of traditional medicine merely confirms what has been seen and known for millennia. This is not an act of scientific discovery, but of trying to fit what is already well known into the narrative of science. Admittedly, there's nothing in natural medicine to beat the power of allopathic drugs. But for COVID-19, these drugs are yet to be found. It is also worth bearing in mind that the subordination of traditional medicine to allopathic medicine has at least something to do with the fact that properly used traditional medicine requires all manner of dietary and physical discipline, which people are glad to avoid if they can just pop a pill instead. So the decline of natural medicine is not entirely due to the surer and quicker results of allopathic medicine. Moreover, in COVID times, when medicines have failed to do their usual magic, we have to remind ourselves of the link between natural and allopathic medicine, a link that has never uh, really been entirely broken. The therapeutic agent in many chemical drugs can be traced back to natural sources and their discoveries to popular use in traditional medicine. One such example is quinine, used to treat malaria. It was developed from the bark of the quinquona tree that grows in South America and Western Africa, where European colonials found the natives using it as medicine. Everyone knows the story of how the gin and tonic was invented by British colonials in India who added gin to their daily dose of quinine tonic to make it more palatable. Aspirin was developed after studying the leaves of the willow tree, which had been used in Europe for thousands of years for fever and inflammation. Quinine looms large over the medical landscape right down to the present COVID times. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are synthetic forms of quinine. Another traditional herbal remedy is Artemisia from plants found in the Far East and in Africa. Artemisinin is a synthetic form of Artemisia, which is the current WHO-recommended malaria drug that replaced quinine and chloroquine. In their raw form, natural medicines can produce harsh side effects, and so the work of science has been to find chemicals that mimic their therapeutic quality while reducing side effects. But the natural remedy is nevertheless the starting point for the search for the drug and remains at the core of the drug as treatment.
This is not even in dispute in scientific research. There are volumes of scientific papers on the natural origins of drugs. In this way, we can see medicine as a system that emerges <clears throat> out of the general body of knowledge that we humans develop as a society. This is something that has been discussed for centuries in the medical field. Drawing from leading thinkers in the medical field in, the, in late 18th century France, Foucault sums up this proposition in the birth of the clinic in this way. At the dawn of mankind, prior to every system, medicine in its entirety consisted of an immediate relationship between sickness and that which alleviated it. This relationship was one of instinct and sensibility. Multiplied by itself, transmitted from one to another, it became a general form of consciousness. Everyone, without distinction, practiced this medicine. Each person's experience were communicated to others, and this knowledge passed from father to children. <clears throat> These strands of medical thought that point to the ancestry of medical thinking need to be revisited in the present times when allopathic medicine is admittedly at a loss with COVID-19. <clears throat> the Chinese were unabashed about using traditional Chinese medicine during their COVID-19 epidemic. <clears throat> they reported the widespread use of Chinese traditional medicine, among other treatments, in the Hu China Joint Mission Report. They opened hospital centers in Wuhan, where people were treated with traditional herbal brews and the world-famous traditional Chinese therapies of acupressure and acupuncture. But instead of encouraging countries to apply their knowledge of traditional medicine in the search for cures for COVID, the World Health Organization discouraged the idea of traditional remedies. It even issued a statement against the use of herbal remedies from the Artemisia plant when the Madagascans claimed to have found a therapy based on it, which they called COVID organics. <clears throat> but regardless of the World Health Organization's arrogant dismissal of COVID organics, African countries queued up to purchase it, and researchers from all over Europe initiated collaboration with the Madagascans to trial it. <clears throat> the energetic Madagascan president, André Raiolina, went on French radio to denounce the WHO for rejecting COVID, uh, COVID organics out of hand, saying that the West could not accept that a poor country like his might have found a treatment for COVID-19. With all this pressure, and he was successful, with hats off to him, with all this pressure, the WHO was forced to agree to cooperate with the Madagascans to start trialing COVID organics. <clears throat> the WHO has a history of resisting natural therapies, which is unfair and unhelpful in and of itself. If its concern is poor countries, then natural remedies are a relatively inexpensive and widely accessible form of medicine. But the resistance to COVID organics, which is based on naturally found Artemisia, is particularly surprising given that the WHO itself recommends artemisinin, the synthetic form of this same compound, for other treatments. Why could not the WHO have looked at the Madagascan claims about COVID organics as a form of repurposing of drugs that is routine and permitted in the field of pharmacy? Why the dogmatic refusal to consider anything that does not come in the form of a synthetic drug? And is this merely dogma 
or does the explanation for this resistance lie in competition from pharmaceutical companies who manufacture artemisinin? <clears throat> the WHO fails and fails again as the world's leading health authority to demonstrate the imagination and boldness required in the COVID crisis. First of all, it needs to admit the defeat of medical practice in its current state against COVID-19. And then, more importantly, it needs to encourage the search for new ideas and new lines of research that might lead us to therapies for this disease. This concludes part 5 of this lecture series. Thank you for your attention. Today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog, covidlectures.blogspot.com, where the full paper and parts 1, 2, 3 and 4 of my earlier lectures have already been published, <clears throat> along with links to YouTube videos and podcasts for this series. See you tomorrow, 7pm India time, 2.30pm London time and 9.30am New York time on Facebook Live for another round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you.